This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. We are getting stuck into the smaller end of the market, and that's a big focus or big interest for me, um, the small and mid-cap space, and we've got a true expert here to help us understand it and unpack it. We do. We are fortunate enough to be joined on the show this evening by Nick Cregan. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate your time and your interest. So Nicholas has 17 years investment experience in both domestic US and international markets. He's currently the partner and portfolio manager at Fairlight Asset Management and is an expert in global small and mid cap stocks, which Ren mentioned is a particular interest of ours. And Nick uh, focuses in on technology, healthcare, light industrials and consumer staples. So look, we're going to pick his brains when it comes to the the process of finding small caps and how we should be thinking about small caps, uh, small to mid cap stocks in our portfolio. So let's do it. Yeah. And we've even got a few specific stocks that we're going to unpack. But before we do all that, we like to start with a game. The game is overrated or underrated. And so we'll get stuck into that now. So Nick, first up, we'll start domestically at home, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index. Very good question. And I think it depends on whether you're looking at it from a historical or a perspective basis. And I don't want to put the boot in too hard here because Credit Suisse did a study and they were able to show that Australia has been the best performing index from 1900 all the way through to 2019. No way. Uh, 2000, yeah, 2019, beating both the US and the European indices. So it's it's hardly been what you'd call a slouch, but that performance has come from a reasonably narrow contingency of stocks. So just under 50% of the ASX 200 is comprised of financials. A big portion of that, of course, is the banks and, and resource stocks. So any sort of reversal of any of those trends driving the Australian economy over the last 30 years would leave investors pretty exposed. It's also quite expensive, acknowledging interest rates are quite low, but the index itself is quite expensive. So from my point of view, overrated. 
Fascinating. That's an, such an interesting start. <laughs> Definitely going to pull that one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's been a wonderful place to be uh, historically, but uh, you know, the, some of the some of the um, potential headwinds coming up could be a bit of an issue for Australia as we sort of dive into some of the details through the talk. I think. So, Nick, overrated or underrated the Nasdaq 100? Well, um, once again, if we include Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google as part of the S&P 500, the tech sector now makes up a record 37% of the S&P 500, uh, which is pretty interesting because you think that that actually peaked at less than 35% during the tech bubble of 2000, uh, sorry, 99, 2000. Of course, the major difference this time around is there's actually some real businesses with wonderful cash flow and, um, and growth opportunities. So there's no doubting that the amount of junk that was in that, that index going back to 99 was pretty horrific. But once again, from a valuation standpoint, they're incredibly expensive and, and probably due to a higher proportion of Robinhood investors and greater, <laughs> and, and probably greater representation with the ETF market as well. So from my point of view, once again, overrated. Mm. So if we move back home, Australians obviously love property, but we want to get your thoughts on it. So overrated or underrated Australian residential property? Great question. I think you can look at this topic through a couple of different lenses. And the, the first one being financial, the question really is, do we think it's reasonable to expect the Australian property market to deliver some kind of reasonable return over the next couple of decades? I'm not sure I've got a great answer for this one and it hardly wins you any friends raising the topic at a barbecue because a lot of Australians, I think, and I believe the statistic is we're, we're number two in terms of household debt to GDP after the Swiss. Prices have definitely benefited from, benefited from a one-way trend in interest rates over the past 20 years. So not really a lot of juice to go there either. And I think um, Turnbull, who you guys had on the on the call on the program a few weeks back, made a pretty good point on migration levels. There's, there's reason to believe we've got some stagnation going there. Lending standards are going to come in, and you know it's probably not hard to see why the Australian housing lending is is now contracting at the, at the fastest levels we've seen over the past 30 years. So from a pricing perspective, I, I think it's reasonable to say it's probably overrated. But the other way of looking at it, of course, is through the lens of personal freedom, which I'm sure you guys are probably a little bit more okay with, and you know, leveraging an asset 10 to 1 doesn't give you a lot of wriggle room and can probably stifle your ability to take risk. So if you wanted to get involved in a new business venture, like launching a podcast, for instance, and having sort of a high percentage of disposable income going to mortgage servicing, it really does put a dampener on your, your entrepreneurial perspective. So from, from that point of view, I think it's a little bit overrated also. And podcasting is a highly risky business. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I've just heard over the last few weeks you guys sort of pitching your wares and trying to sort of raise a bit of equity on the side. So oh. I, I thought from that point. Are you interested? Should we take this offline? <laughs> <laughs> we, we would classify as a small cap. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so from that point of view, and I, I think that um, I think you had Ed from TDM on, on the on the line a couple of weeks ago as well, mentioning mm. that he doesn't own residential property. I put myself firmly in that camp as well. So putting our money where our mouth is and into uh, into equities. Well, that was actually going to be my follow-up question because we had a couple of listeners reach out quite recently actually and, and have uh, suggested that the follow-up should always be, you know, do you actually own property? Because we have a lot of these investors come on and sort of, you know, give us a lot of reasons why property isn't good, but then they have this big property portfolio sitting <laughs> behind them. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, are you actually putting your money where your mouth is? So it's actually interesting that you're in, in that boat. Yeah, I, 
and I think they also you you probably should get the follow up question for a few of the people who are listening in on does the fund manager put his money into the fund he's managing as well, which is usually a pretty good indicator of what they sort of think of their own strategy and and whether they're willing to back themselves alongside their clients. And to that end, everyone in our team is heavily invested in in the fund. So plenty of alignment through Fairlight. We'll add that one in. And if the if the fund manager says no, then we've just sunk their funds. So, <laughs> <laughs> so continuing on, a couple more overrated or underrated? The Australian wax stocks. So Wise Tech, <laughs> Apen, Afterpay, Zero. You know the big darlings at the moment. Absolutely, and, and as you guys know, we at Fairlight invest 100% offshore. So, you know, the limited amount of research I've done on on the Australian wise tech businesses, I can offer some thoughts, but it may not be particularly wise counsel. So, take it with a grain of salt. But from the limited reading I've done on wise tech specifically, there, do, there does seem to be quite the collection of prominent warts across its governance and accounting functions. So, plenty of res, red flags for me across the board highly acquisitive, it's capitalising its costs, it maybe should be expenses, it uses sort of quirky accounting gimmicks to shelter some of uh, some of its subsidiaries against um, what we would think would be pretty appropriate scrutiny. And last but not least, insiders have been dumping stock at quite a rate. So on 20 times sales, I suspect that one's highly overrated. Afterpay is an interesting one and perhaps a little bit misunderstood when the business model first came out. Obviously, the newer generation tend to have less of an affinity with credit cards. So the company has found a, a genuine fit. But the big question is one of what does steady state look like and um, competition really rapidly coming into that part of the market. Do we need one? Do we need five? It's pretty unclear sort of how that market develops. Once again, very, very expensive. Altium, I don't know that much about it other than it's got a pretty large addressable market, but a little bit more defined than the other wax cohorts. Appen, from what I understand, uses sort of humans to help AI train neural nets. So it's certainly in a pretty sexy part of the market, but an impressive customer base, 70% of their revenue is made up of just three customers. So from a concentration point of view, mm. a risk point of view on a big multiple, I'd, I'd say it's pretty overrated. Mm. Um, and then zero, which is a genuine success story, born out of a pretty unique, unique time when Myob was in private equity hands and uh, private equity in their infinite wisdom, taking a knife to R&D and levering up the balance sheet, maybe allowed Zero to get a little bit of a leg ahead. Very, very impressive business, big runway for growth. As a cohort, however, huge multiples. So all of that sort of good news is really priced into the outlook for, for the WAC sector. And I think overrated probably talks a little bit of the narrowness of the Australian market and yeah. inability to find great businesses on on, on decent multiples. Mm, yeah, it's a serious scarcity play. Yeah, I think so. So next one, US-China trade war is a very on-again, off-again, will-they-won't-they topic between Trump and Xi Jinping. But overrated or underrated, if the trade war does happen and does really blow up, overrated or underrated the effect it will have on the Australian economy? Good question. And, and looking a little bit of history here is, is useful. So uh, the last time we had a, a major downturn, we had a pretty good relationship with China and they unleashed a huge fiscal credit stimulus in 2009, which was about 10% of GDP to pay for construction of roads, bridges, railways, all that sort of stuff. And uh, most of that, or a great deal of that was a, a big misallocation of resources led to lower productivity. 
And so this time around, it really does look like the, the Chinese are a little bit more circumspect in the way that they're spending money. So some of the less commodity intensive projects such as 5G and charging stations for electric vehicles seem to be what they're focusing on. But with the backdrop of the rising tensions between the US and Australia this time around, so it's not just the US, but I did notice that we granted sort of 10,000 new visas to existing Australian residents in response to the national security laws imposed by the CCP. We could expect a pretty dramatic impact on Australians' economy. However, it's not yet coming through in the numbers, which is quite interesting. So for the last six months to June, the exports to China in terms of iron ore has grew by 10% and coal was 13% and LNG was 3%. So it's not really coming through in the numbers yet. And of course, offsetting that is the bans on, on beef, barley, education, etc. So it's very, very difficult to see the situation improving either for the US or for Australia, because it does look like the West is collating around the idea of a united front against the perceived aggression of an increasingly assertive Chinese Communist Party. So it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better. And it, it does really look like the huge stimulus package that we saw last time around isn't going to happen. So to mine, it's underrated in terms of the impact we're going to see over the next few years. Well, speaking of impact and to close this out, overrated or underrated the impact of COVID-19 on the Australian economy, or if perhaps if you've got focus over in the US at the moment on the US economy? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the big question mark is what happens once the stimulus or the paycheck support mechanisms roll off? Is there an appetite for further leverage and, and support of the consumer? I think that's really going to come down to a policy response. So hard to see that it's going to be positive when we see these responses roll off. And just the sort of violent rebound we've had in equity markets, I, I, to mine, it looks like it's a little bit underrated in terms of the impact. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mm. So, Nick, moving on from the game, we always like to start these questions with the story of someone's first investment. There's generally mm. a good story or a good lesson that comes out of it. So to kick us off tonight, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yeah, sure. I, I thought maybe rather than my first investment, it might be a little bit more constructive in terms of the lessons I, I learned from one of my first larger investments. And, and that came about when I was a sell-side analyst with the job of analysing, and I was a young analyst, so in my very early 20s, 
analyzing and providing research on, on a terrible business called Hasty Air Conditioning. And there's probably a few people on the call if they're old enough to remember this business. But by all accounts, it really was a terrible business. They had razor thin margins. The, the working capital profile was horrific. They, they never got paid on time. They were very acquisitive and they used equity as currency to, to close deals. So you know, issuing issuing equity at, at pretty sort of low valuations. And um, it really was the cognitive biases at work on my very undeveloped investing mind at that time that brought me unstuck. So we sort of run through sort of three of the major biases there. It's always good to go back and really have a good look at sort of where you thought you were suffering from these. But the first one was overconfidence bias. So I was, I was young and I didn't know what I didn't know, which is you know, we're all in that spot when we start out. So no problems there. But I had a line into management. So I, I thought I had a great handle on the operations and the financials of the business. But, but in reality, I was just close enough to the business that they could feed me sort of all sorts of interesting information that may or may not have re relevance. There was all sorts of recency bias. So the stock was pretty new. It had a, a very short track record, but quite a successful one, but it certainly hadn't been tested by a cycle. And so, you know, it really was uh, a Johnny come lately sort of business and um, you're relying on a pretty short track record to, to figure out whether it was a good business or not. And, and the last one was confirmation bias. So the nature of the deals they were doing in the short term made the, the earnings accretion look really terrific, but ultimately it became quite over leveraged. Many of the founders of the business they bought left. I managed to sell the stock before I lost all my money, but eventually went to zero. But it was a fantastic lesson in, you know, some of the very easy traps we fall into when we get sort of too close to a business and 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 start to look at look at it through rose-colored glasses, if you like. Yeah, I love that. You know, we speak about cognitive bias every now and then on the show, and it's something that I think as investors at the early stage of their journey or our journey, it's something we need to consistently remind ourselves of. Are there any sort of biases at the moment that you still need to be very aware of when you're in your day to day? Absolutely. And, and in fact, we've actually built a, a number of sort of overrides into our process to overcome some of those. And a, a lot of what we do is backed by research. So there is a group up in um, the UK called Analytics that put a study together that showed that active managers, so professional managers, give up about 100 basis points per annum in essentially selling their best ideas too early and adding to their losers too readily. So what's called the disposition effect. So we overcome that by dividing our portfolio into three major buckets. So high quality growth, stable compounders and low risk turnarounds. And it's really in the high quality growth names that we suffer from that disposition effect more readily. So we're much more patient in the speed in which we sell those businesses. So yes, we're trimming them. We do have, we look through the portfolio, always through the prism of risk, but it is those businesses that can compound out for long periods of time at high rates of return that can surprise you on the upside. So we build that into our process and tend to hold those businesses a little bit longer than we otherwise would be comfortable with. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So before we move into some specifics on small and mid caps, I guess you can answer this from the from a Fairlight asset management point of view, but what is the investing philosophy that you now sort of, I guess, live during your day to day? Yeah, so the philosophy is, and I guess the easiest way to really talk about it is sort of how it's come about, where where it's where it's come from, how we arrive there, and and, and ultimately the results have been. But I've been incredibly fortunate that uh, I've been able to distill my personal investing philosophy down into a process that's formed the backbone of the business. And during that journey, I've been lucky enough to work with some wonderful mentors. 
uh, David Wanness, who's now the founder of Longwave, Jenny Jones in New York, who is one of the best long-term track records investing in US small caps in history, and um, Stephen Arnold, who's now the founder of Aorus, very hardworking and, and um, knowledgeable guy. And then uh, I've now been fortunate enough to partner with some very, very talented people whose philosophy thankfully aligns with mine. And we've taken what's empirically empirically worked for us over the years and cross-checked that with the academic literature to design a process that sets out to build as many market tailwinds as possible uh, into our process before we start looking at specific stocks. So in doing that, what, what we do is we, we invest in the smaller cohort of the market as there's evidence over the last 100 years, and, and this is put together by academic literature over time, that US smaller caps outperform the general market over about a 100-year period. It doesn't happen every year, but over that sort of time period, there is this tailwind of small caps consistently outperforming large caps. And by the way, that's not persistent here in Australia. So Australia is one of the unique markets where actually large caps outperform smalls. But it is persistent across the other developed markets in Europe. So around 90% of the developed market smalls outperform large. So that's the starting point. And then everything we do, we look through the prism of risk, as I, I mentioned earlier. So we, we don't like sectors that need a lot of debt to, to drive their returns. And we don't like highly cyclic, cyclical sectors. So we screen those out as well. We invest only in developed markets where we can rely on the currencies and the reporting standards. So we, we like to be able to read an annual report, trust the accounting. It's very, very important. You don't always get that in emerging markets. And sometimes the selective disclosure in emerging markets can be quite interesting as well. We love businesses that generate lots of cash. And so we, we loosely define those businesses as quality companies. You can, you can define quality in lots of different ways. But for us, it's really businesses that generate a lot of cash through the cycle. So typically, they've been around for a little while. And then we employ, as I mentioned, three slightly different styles of investing within quality. So we've got growth, we've got what we call stable compounders and um, special situations. The growth names, to use a couple of Australian examples, would be sort of your, your typical CSLs of the world where you can deploy capitals at very, very high rates of return for long periods of time. The stable compounders are more you, you know, your Woolies and your Coles, great businesses, and they can they can sort of eke out um, GDP type returns, drive some margin, maybe buy back some stock, and you get to reliable 10 to 12% earnings per share outcomes. And then around 10 to 15% of the portfolios in what we call special situations. And these are turnaround stocks. They're not highly leveraged Ugandan oil explorers, but they're more sort of businesses that are at their core are quality, but they need maybe a management team to be moved along. And we get involved in activists within activists in the US to try and help this process along or spin-offs. So statistically, spin-offs have generated really good returns over time, less so in the last few years, but certainly over the last couple of decades, spin-offs have been a great place to generate returns. And then at the individual stock level, we don't like leverage. I think that the Russell 2000 at the moment leveraged about four and a half times cash flow, which is a pretty interesting place to be, whereas the Fairlight portfolio is more like one times cash flow, which is a very low levels of leverage across the, the business. We remain really disciplined on valuation. Valuation really hasn't mattered over the last five or six years. So um, you know, markets are kind of just rocketed up from bottom left to top right of the page and valuation hasn't mattered, but, but it will. Eventually, valuation does matter. And so we've been very, very disciplined there and, and, and continue to be. And then we remain diversified from both an underlying ec economic exposure and a market returns perspective. So we look at correlations, but we also look at the underlying economic exposures of our business. I think most importantly, 
and this comes down to a bit more of a softer factor, but we foster a culture that openly communicates errors and swiftly terminates our investment mistakes. And I, I think that that one is one of the most important parts of our process, that um, it really is the communication between our team and how that works that allows us to eliminate errors very, very quickly and, and protect client capital. I love that. It's a complete philosophy. Like there's a lot of elements that we can unpack there, but I, I think it's a it's a pretty robust one and it it definitely ties together a lot of elements that we hear from a lot of the experts we speak to. So I think if people want to apply a personal investing philosophy for their personal portfolios, maybe they should just clip that and just uh, <laughs> set it as their set it as their yeah. alarm every morning or something so like easy. that. <laughs> <laughs> So if we move to the small and mid-cap space specifically, which is where you're focused and where you're focused on applying that investment philosophy, if we start general, can we start with what your definition is at Fairlight for your investable universe, what small and mid-cap stocks mean to you guys? Yeah, sure. We, we keep it pretty simple. So we just say from 500 million up to 20 billion in market cap. So believe it or not, a $20 billion business in the US is still considered mid cap. That's crazy. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. It, it is crazy. And if you put that into perspective, so if you look at the ASX 200, the median stock, I think it's the average or maybe it's the median, but that gives us an idea, is 8 billion in terms of the average market cap. So the average weighted market cap across our portfolio is 10 billion. So that should put it into perspective in terms of the range of businesses that are available offshore and just what a minnow at the end of the day, the Australian market is. I think we account for about 4% of global market cap. To put it truly in perspective, $20 billion is what Coles is valued at currently. And from memory, Coles sits in the ASX 20. Well, there you go. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> That's a pretty good stat, but but it's we we consistently find businesses that are capped at you know five to ten billion that don't have a, a single analyst covering them. So, the raft of sort of I wouldn't call them undiscovered businesses, but I guess underbroked or underanalyzed businesses is is quite stark as compared to the Australian market. That's fascinating. Such a huge pool of opportunity out there that I guess as Australian investors, it's quite hard to get access to information. How should we as investors early in our journey think about small caps as part of our sort of portfolio? Yeah, it's a good question and it gets to the heart of you know whether you should be investing directly or if you should be spending your time analysing managers, quite frankly, because I think where it really comes down to is there's, there's 5,300 stocks in, in our index. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's become less of an idea of management access where in the Australian market, perhaps you can sort of wear out a lot of shoe leather and, and visit a lot of businesses and read a lot of annual reports and you, you, can, you can get a pretty good picture of what's going on. It's really a matter of distilling the market down to something more manageable. When you start with 5,300 stocks and you want it to you know, eventually, for us anyway, get to a portfolio of 30 to 40, how do you go about doing that? And so we apply, as, you sort of, as we sort of indicated through our process, some pretty heavy filters across the market in terms of what we're looking for. And then we apply so sector filters, geographics filters, financial filters, et cetera, to get down to about 200 businesses between the team of four of us that's of some interest. And then we put together a portfolio of 30 to 40 names. That does take some IP and it does take some time and it also takes some travel. So we get out on the road and we visit management teams. We try and build relationships with active managers in terms of activists that can help us sort of get to outcomes in some of the businesses we're invested in. From a sort of personal investing point of view, that, that can be quite difficult to replicate. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's almost like you take a barbell approach. I, I, I'm a big fan of people holding stocks directly because you just learn a hell of a lot. But also keeping an open mind to the idea that there are reasonable managers out there scrubbing the world for ideas. Maybe it, it isn't such a bad idea to, to try and do some work and see if that uh, that philosophy aligns with yours. And then, of course, the other way of going about it is, you know, if you want to, if you're quite happy with market returns, there's always an ability to to index. So you can index the MSCI uh, World Index without any troubles. And if you're happy with that market return, then and that's a genuine way of of gaining access as well. Yeah, one thing that I've learned through doing this podcast and uh, just you know reading and speaking to experts is. In the large cap space, it seems like it's very difficult to generate alpha, but in emerging markets and in small caps, that professional edge still seems to play a major role. It's very insightful, and you've actually managed to reverse pitch one of the slides in our deck, so thanks very much for that. <laughs> That's right. Just credit me when you update the slide. <laughs> I will. The data shows exactly that. So, you know, obviously, US large caps, incredibly hard index to outperform. Large caps, generally difficult. But then as you go out into the quadrants of, of emerging markets and small caps, the median manager actually, from an active management perspective, actually does add value. I think the number from the last stats I saw was about 2% over the last decade. So your approach there is well-informed. So for for an investor who is unable to get on the plane and go and talk to managers and go through the rigorous filtering process that you guys have at Fairlight, what would you recommend as sort of a key destination or piece of information that you know you should always start with when it comes to trying to identify a potential small cap? I guess you can take the approach of you know invest in what you know. It's not a bad bad spot to to begin. So, the idea of is there a business or a product or a service that I know quite well that I might be able to sort of generate some sort of edge in, and that's really the Peter Lynch Street sort of approach to investing. If you're an individual investor, that's not a bad spot to start. But I would encourage people to go to the effort of reading the literature that's put out by management. So the annual reports, if you can get your hands on the conference notes and the proxy statements, et cetera, they can be a wonderful source of information. That's not for everyone. I know that that sounds incredibly boring, but if you do genuinely want to back yourself to sort of find some businesses that will outperform over over the long term, there's there's really no substitute for the, the work you need to do to get to a informed decision. So, you know, there, there are some wonderful businesses out there that you can sort of read about on blogs and investment letters and the 13Fs they're called. In fact, if you just Google 13F, there's there's all sorts of websites that put up managers' letters that you can sort of read through the pages of those and find some interesting ideas. But you really do need to go to first principles and make sure you understand these businesses before you put your hard-earned capital to work. Mm. So Nick, obviously you're not investing in the Australian small cap universe. And as we just discovered in terms of them from a market cap perspective, international small caps and US small caps are a lot larger in some cases than back in Australia. Are there any other key differences that you know beginner investors or everyday investors should be really cognizant of when they're thinking about investing in small or mid caps in Australia compared to investing in that market overseas? Yeah, well, from a starting point of view, the indexes are quite different. So the ASX mid-cap index, the largest weight in that index makes up about 6% of the index. So it's pretty concentrated and around 23% of the index itself is material. So it's not particularly well diversified. But our index, is it's the largest stock is around 30 basis points. So it's very well diversified and it has much better exposure to sort of technology, healthcare, some of the parts of the Australian market where there is less representation. 
So that's a key input. The second thing is that it's important to know across the board, whether it's in Australia or across the world, that unfortunately the small and mid-cap index does have what would be termed as a junk problem. So a very large portion, I think it's around 25% of our index, doesn't have earnings. So you, you want to be very, very selective and careful in which portions of the index you want to invest and where you go fishing. So the first port of call from us, and I would suggest it's a pretty good starting point for anyone else that's doing some work in this part of the market is try and screen for those businesses that have been profitable for some time. Like if, uh, by all means, you're going to maybe miss the, 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 the 20 bagger that's the new concept stock that, that, you know, that might go up on news or because it's penetrated some sort of new market. But statistically, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. If you, you stick to the businesses that have had a couple of cycles worth of history and have been profitable through that period, you do eliminate quite a portion of the market that, and that does protect you in terms of from your starting point, at least you're fishing from the right pond. So I would look over the longer periods and um, try and screen for those businesses that have been around a bit longer in the small and mid cap market, whether it's in Australia or across the world. So Nick, before we move to some stock specific chat, just wanted to touch on COVID and uh, this part of the market. Are there any major sort of lessons that you've picked up from investing in this part of the market, given what has happened over sort of the last three or four months? Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing is that the market's in much worse shape coming into this downturn than we were last time. So I think I mentioned it before, but the Russell 2000 is levered four and a half times. So huge amounts of debt through the small cap market, which is a pretty interesting place to be. Do you just want to briefly explain what that actually means? Yeah, so there's a metric and it's a very poor metric, but it's a proxy for cash flow. So as the acronyms EBITDA, so earnings before interest and tax depreciation and amortization. And it's a input that's used to measure against the debt load in a business. And here the debt load is aggregated up into an index. So essentially showing the debt as compared to EBITDA, which is a proxy for cash flow. So sort of four and a half years of cash flow to pay down the debt of the index, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, of course, it's much worse than that because uh, I think you guys are, are, are um, students of, of, of Buffett and Munger, but they, they've always sort of very astutely realised that EBITDA is a completely made-up number and, and you know, subject to all sorts of accounting gimmicks, but it's the best sort of proxy that we have. I mean, as long as it's applied consistently over time, it, it does provide a, a bit of an indication of where we are from a, from a debt load point of view. So the, the lesson for us is that coming into COVID and also during COVID, it, it was the, the more leveraged parts of the market that performed very, very poorly. And probably would have gone on to really face some interesting times if it wasn't for the very aggressive actions of the Federal Reserve in buying or at least threatening to buy triple B rated securities and really helping the over leveraged part of the market. So you really are at the whims of regulators and sort of macro support, if you like, if you're going to be buying high, highly levered businesses. So from, from our point of view, it really just re-emphasise that debt gets you into all sorts of issues, making a small issue a big one by applying leverage. So staying away from leverage is a good place to be. The second one is is proven business models. So we like businesses that have been in the market for a while and have proven themselves out. But at the same time, we recognise that disruption is real. So we try and keep an open mind to that. Ian and I are a similar sort of age. We, we can 
came into the market. So Ian being our co-portfolio manager, we came into the markets in the sort of in the ashes of the tech wreck. So we're, we're old enough to know what a cycle looks like, but young enough to know that, that technology really is, you know, software really is eating the world. So we're mindful that our own existing business models, how, how have they fared through this period? Have they employed technology in the correct way to sort of help them through? And are they participating in that acceleration of winners that we've seen through the COVID-19 period? So it's been a, a pretty interesting journey. And also management teams are important. So the underlying management teams of these businesses that are going through this crisis, there, there really is a bifurcation in how these businesses are being managed. Some businesses taking actions very, very early to shore up balance sheets and to really drive home their competitive advantage during the downturn has been quite stark. And so it really is those three lessons of steering clear of debt, making sure that we understand our business models and making sure they're managed by very capable and aligned management teams. I think there are lessons that shone through during COVID, but they're probably good lessons for people to keep in mind whether or not there's a global pandemic raging around the world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's really been acceleration of a lot of the trends that we've seen over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. And it's become a bit of a cliche lately, but I think it's absolutely right that the winners are just sort of accelerating out of the gates and the losers find themselves in a much faster structural decline. So it doesn't take a genius to see what's happening with bricks and mortar retail and in the fashion space, for instance, where a lot of that's moving online. If you don't have a hybrid offering these days, you, you really are finding yourself in all sorts of, of difficulty. And then, you know, where services can move online, they, they, they have been doing it at an accelerating rate. So certainly some lessons to be found there. The second lesson, of course, is just the importance of the structure in which you're operating with under. And this is just complete luck in some ways in terms of, I think Australia and New Zealand, of course, have done a wonderful job in, on managing the, the crisis, but other parts of the world, which have been less responsive from a sort of government point of view, really have struggled. So really the, the response of of, um, of government's been a sort of bit of a wake-up call across the board as well and, and making sure that you you understand that the regime in which you're investing in has been, has been quite, a, quite an important lesson also. So Nick, at this point, you've talked us through your investing philosophy and the market that you're looking at at Fairlight. Now we're really excited to get into some specific stocks that you're looking at. And we're particularly excited because it's three stocks that we've never heard of and probably a lot of our listeners have never heard of. So forget the Microsoft and Amazon conversation. (laughs) This is going to be a conversation where we learn a lot and we're excited to unpack your process, how you found the stocks, how you analyzed them and why you thought they were interesting ones to buy. So we'll start with the first one. The first one is called Ritchie Brothers and they are auctioneers in industrial asset disposition and management company. <laughs> I've just pulled oh, yeah. their explanations and I think there might be a typo there. Uh, but what they do is they help facilitate the selling of heavy industrial equipment and trucks through live and online auctions. So can you talk us through a little bit about this company and then perhaps how you first discovered it? What's the market cap on this one? 19B? <laughs> uh, I think it's one of the small ones. I think it's around $8 billion, but I'll have to double check oh, that number. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but well, taking a step back, at Fairlight, we, we really quite like these niche network businesses because if they scale correctly, they tend to deliver incredible value over time. In fact, I was reading a study pretty recently that suggests around 70% of the value created in the tech sector since the 1970s has been driven by pretty successful iterations of network-based business models. So we hold quite a few of these. They don't have to be particularly intuitive. So they're network businesses that operate across insurance, vehicle scrappage, 
credit reporting services, financial benchmarking. And, and in fact, our portfolio is made up of about 30% of these kind of really interesting niche networking businesses. They, they don't really appear in the media all that often. So to, to your point, you know, the, the FANG stock's pretty well known. Um, but as a cohort, the, the FANG stocks are about 22 years old, whereas the businesses that we hold have an average age of around 44 years, which to my point earlier about understanding the longevity and and dependency of these businesses sort of really corroborates with that story. So with Ritchie Brothers, starting off with what they do, so you can think of them as really auctioneers, if you like, of, of everything that's yellow. So if you think about Caterpillar trucks, mining, <laughs> mining equipment, sort of all, all this heavy equipment that you see as you sort of driving through construction sites or um, roadworks or, or mining operations, they're the largest globally. So they've got a, a market share lead, which is a great place to be and where you need to be really if you're going to be building a network business. But they command only 2% of the global market share. So they've got a huge runway for growth and it's that classic network marketplace. So the more equipment they set, they sell, begets more buyers and then on and on that flywheel spins because um, more product attracts more customers over time. The investment case actually became pretty interesting back in 2015 as a gentleman by the name of Ravi Salagram joined the business after recently negotiating the merger between two businesses in the US called Office Max and Office Depot, and he did a terrific job on, on, on extracting some value for his shareholders. But he had what we thought was an incredibly coherent strategy for driving sales growth, margins, and ultimately the cash this business was going to generate over around about a five-year journey. And so he went about doing that in a number of different ways. But one of the most important things that he did was he recognized that the number two competitor, a business called Iron Planet, had a wonderful digital footprint, but didn't have much in the way of sales. So he was able to pick up what was a fantastic digital asset for a pretty reasonable multiple because Iron Planet hadn't bridged the gap between the old model and the new. So they didn't have enough salespeople to drive that velocity that you need to get that flywheel spinning, but they'd spent a hell of a lot of money on their digital footprint. So we had a situation where Ravi came into the business he started to digitize the business, which meant that you know, margins naturally start to expand, but you don't need as many physical lots either. So the land banks that they required to store their equipment and have people on site to sort of bang the hammer down and drive these sales is much lower as well. So returns on capital started to rise and that money went into paying down the debt that he'd um, accrued on the balance sheet from doing this deal. So we accelerate to COVID, we now find ourselves in a situation where the competitor set that Ritchie Brothers is now competing against are sort of local auctioneers and maybe state-based auctioneers owned by maybe sophisticated families or private equity but don't have that digital footprint that's required to service the market in a COVID-like environment. And that sort of comes down to my, my point earlier about understanding your business model during COVID-19 and, and understanding whether it's going to be part of the winner or the loser cohort. And we think that Richie Brothers is, is certainly going to be part of that, uh, that winner cohort, taking nice swaths of market share away from their competitors during this lockdown period. So it's a really interesting business. It's driven nice returns uh, for the portfolio. And I think it's got a very, very nice runway for growth over the next couple of decades. Yeah, fascinating. And it's certainly become evident that COVID is, you know, those businesses that have set themselves up with a digital capacity or, as you say, digital footprint are certainly able to take advantage of what's going on at the moment. Are you able to just take a step back and, and sort of define for those that have just joined the show what the key sort of aspects or characteristics of a network business are? 
Yeah, sure. So the main sort of characteristic of a network is is really having the, a set of buyers on one side and a set of sellers on the other. So you can think of the Ebays of the world, the Amazons, where you're really building a focal point for buyers and sellers to come together to transact in a, a highly efficient way. And the, the way that these businesses build out over time is it becomes a sort of self-reinforcing competitive advantage where essentially as long as you are the go-to provider of a service, you end up with a disproportionate amount of the product or inventory. And it doesn't really matter what that product or inventory is. As long as you've got the most of it, you just become the natural go-to spot for that that product or service. And so in this case for Ritchie Brothers, it's um, you know something as niche as essentially um, yellow equipment that needs to be sort of on sold and moved through the process of, of um, the businesses that have got too much inventory or they might have found themselves in a downturn like we have at the moment where they've got excess equipment and they need to move that on pretty quickly. The best place for them to realise value for that equipment in the most efficient way is through Ritchie Brothers because they've got the largest amount of sellers. So it's, it's really that uh, intersection between buyers and sellers and how you can act as an agent in between those to drive that network effect. Mm. So Nick, it sounds like a big catalyst for growth for this company was management and was the incoming CEO who, you know, as you explained, acquired the the largest competitor and all their digital assets and uh, shifted the focus of the business. That CEO has now moved on and there's mm-hmm. a new CEO in his place. How do you think about that where, you know, such an important part of the growth story was the management and that management changes? What's your process to then sort of reassess your position and understand if you want to continue holding with new management in place? That's a very good question. But one of the key elements that that gave us some confidence there was that Ravi communicated very, very early on that this was going to be his last hurrah. So his strategy that he put in place was over a five-year period. And he said, at the end of this, I'm going to retire and I'm going to hand this business on to someone that's going to sort of guide the business through a different stage of its journey. Sometimes the person, the guy or the or the girl that's in charge of the turnaround or setting the strategy isn't always the best person to drive the business in, in a steady state. And that's certainly the case with Ravi, who's a little bit more of a visionary in some ways. And I think that you know, once he's, the strategy was in place, he was certainly showing the, the fruits of his labour, handing that over to a, a manager that was happy to do sort of the harder yards and extracting longer-term value made a lot of sense to us. There's also a lot of continuity amongst other members of the management team, so CFO, CFO, COO remains in place, the strategy remains identical and the board members are executing against that. So from our point of view, that was fine, but it does definitely in in, in many instances raise some red flags, especially where that's combined with other elements such as insider selling or sort of turnover amongst employees at the the more junior ranks as well. So we, we try and sort of balance those views against what else is going on in the business. So for those interested in Ritchie Brothers, the ticker is RBA easy to remember. You can go and check that out. So let's move on to the sec. Traded in Canada. Is that is that right, Nick? It's actually listed on both the US and the Canadian bourses. So you can even get exposure through either one. So if we move to the next stock, Nick, which is Verisk Analytics, if you want to give us a bit of a rundown on what they do. And again, uh, what is the, the thesis behind this one? Yeah, it, we love the intersection between 
incredibly boring and incredibly complex. And so Verus definitely fits the bill here. So I don't think we're going to win any awards for the sexiest stock in the world. But <laughs> Can't be less sexy than uh, auctioneer trading heavy machinery. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, so it, it gets even more niche. And, and I, I, guess, I guess that this is where great investing or great returns don't necessarily have to correlate with the most interesting of stories. But but Verus, for what they do is it's, you actually have to go back quite some time to understand the business and it was actually born out of a the mclaren ferguson act of 1945 which actually brought this business together and essentially what veris does it's at its core it's a contributory database for the property and casualty insurance market and so one of the best examples or easiest ways to explain it would be every time there's a policy written or there's a claim made against an insurance policy that information is contributed to fair risk across all the different insurance companies in the US into a contributory database. And that information is used to price the policies and understand whether there's fraud. So maybe if Bryce had totaled his car in, in California, he couldn't also make that claim in Arizona, for instance, so that you don't get sort of this, this sense of fraud across state borders. Now, the reason why it's, it's it, I'll give you that history is that it was a state-based business back in 1945, and it was actually exempt from the antitrust laws in that time because the legislators realised that it was very, very important for insurers to have this centralised database that allowed them to understand if they were being defrauded or not. So if we accelerate through to 2008, 2009, that business was listed and they're managing sort of four and a half billion statistical records a year, and they're cleansing that data and they're extracting a little bit of financial rent and selling it back to the insurance companies but it's essentially a monopoly. I mean, there's just no way that you can replace that data set because they've got the historical data going back all of that time and they've got all these insurance companies that have no incentive to create a competitor, mainly because it's such a small cost to their overall operation. So you, ha you have this niche contributory database which generates phenomenal margins, you know, margins in the sort of 40% range, very, very consistent organic growth because they have a little bit of pricing power and they pick up new customers and use the data in interesting ways. And it gets to a business that generates some really nice, consistent 10 to 12% earnings per share outcomes every year. And that compounds out over a long period of time and drives great returns for shareholders. So, you know, it's not Apple, it's not it's not um, Google, it's not sexy, but it's an incredibly profitable business that's, um, that's delivered great returns for our fund. So would Lemonade be a customer of Verisk? It's a very good question. You're going to have to tell me who Lemonade is. And then I'll have to <laughs> <laughs> They're uh, a company that recently IPO'd in the States that uh -huh. use artificial intelligence to what sounds like analyze this sort of data that Verisk would be housing and then create much more specific premiums for insurance companies based on the customer rather than, I, I guess, like a more of a blanket premium approach, you know, your traditional insurers currently offer. So maybe it's a competitor for Verisk, I'm not sure, but... It could well be, but it sounds pretty likely they'll be a customer because they'd be probably defined yeah, that data using and that running. Data. I'd say so. I mean, I'll have a, I'll have a look and, and come back to you guys to make sure I cross that off, but... Um, well, first thing to tomorrow like morning, that. Nick, when you go <laughs> to the office. I'll do, my, I'll do my homework and shoot that through. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, I'm looking at the history of Verisk since it was listed, and it looks like there's been a number of acquisitions over time. It looks, mm -hmm. it seems to pretty consistently acquire a business every 
well, in some in sometimes every year, but maybe every couple of years. How do you think about a company that is sort of constantly acquiring? Do you think that's value destructive or is it, do you look at that as a positive and think of it as, you know, adding value? It really depends on the company. So it's very hard to deny statistically, and there's been a lot of studies done over time on this topic that that acquisitions in aggregate provide value. So in aggregate, we think that acquisitions destroy value. And I think there was a paper put together by McKinsey that really went into detail on this. But there is a cohort of businesses that do it well. And there are some that are set up that to do it specifically this. We actually have a smaller list of stocks, about five or six that operate in some pretty interesting geographies up in Sweden and the Nordics and over the UK and a couple in the US that do an absolutely amazing job of what is really set up to be capital allocation businesses. They, they buy companies on very nice earnings yields of sort of 12 and 15% and um, they don't consolidate those operations. They let those businesses run as almost entrepreneurial units, reinvest the cash flows into new businesses. And they've been really successful over sort of 20 or 30 years. So it's, it's hard to sort of paint the picture of those being the traditional highly leveraged and risky roll-up story. They are actually successful businesses. Now, as that refers to Verisk, Verisk is a little different from that. So they've got a core operations and they use those cash flows to either launch or buy other businesses where they think they can add some value. And one of the opportunities we had to buy into Verisk was when they made a, an acquisition that wasn't particularly well liked by the by the market. And that was one called Woodmac, which services, of, of all things, the oil and gas market, where arguably Verisk doesn't have a competitive advantage and don't have a lot of history in, in understanding that market. And, and quite rightly, I think at the time, equity markets decided to sort of mark down the value of Verisk based on the fact that they, you know, they it, it could be perceived to be quite risky. As it's turned out, however, Verisk has done an amazing job with that business. And, and the reason for that is it wasn't so much where the business was situated, but the kind of IP and knowledge that you need to build within that operation to drive returns. So the kind of statistical analysis and machine learning AI that that employed on the insurance side wasn't being employed very particularly well within Woodmac which was aggregating data that was used by oil and gas companies to figure out whether they should be purchasing a new well or starting new operations based on flow rates of existing assets, et cetera. The data just wasn't used particularly well. They had a great client base. They had a great product, but the learnings that they could bring from their core business into Woodmac was actually pretty impressive. So that, they've actually gone on to drive margins up by, I think, a few hundred basis points. Organic growth rates have been, as of sort of before COVID, pretty good. And now we've hit this sort of kink in the road at the moment where so oil and gas is under some pretty terrific pressure. But the characteristics of that business is pretty strong because they have long-term contracts, sort of like SaaS-based contracts within their customer base. So their customer base literally has to go broke before they stop using some of those Woodmac assets. So I think they do a pretty good job and it has come through on the returns on capital numbers and it has come through on the earnings per share. So we give them a bit of a passing grade on, on the capital allocation side. Now, I'm reading here that when Verisk IPO'd in 2009, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, was a large shareholder and chose not to sell, one of the few large shareholders not to sell any stock at the IPO. I guess that lends itself to a larger question, which is when you're analyzing companies like this, how much are you looking at other experts, other asset managers, companies like Berkshire Hathaway? and sort of reading into what they're doing and, and potentially taking cues from their buying and selling actions? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we don't mind standing on the shoulders of giants, right? We, we, we're humble enough to, to say that there's some guys out there that do an amazing job in screening stocks and, and investing. And so if, if a portion of the hard work's been done for us by looking at the share registry and seeing if there's a bunch of guys that we respect that are already there, then it will at least raise our eyebrows. So for instance, if there's going through our screening process and we get the stocks down to sort of a, a list of 200 and we're running, we'd run some pretty automated processes across those to, to screen them down further. If as part of our first investment committee discussion, we look at the register and see that, you know, the, the likes of a Warren Buffett or a Choose Your Poison is, is on the on the register, then absolutely we will become a little bit more interested in that business. But it certainly doesn't determine our investment decisions. In fact, we found ourselves betting against some of the most respected investors in the market and doing quite okay out of that. And and a lot of that comes down to, you know, you don't know the reasons why that investor is selling either. They might be repositioning their portfolio or they might be buying for similar reasons. So whilst it is a good indicator, it's not the be all or end all. So we do definitely take that element with a grain of salt. Now, you've thrown the bait out there for me and I have to buy it. You said you went against a big investor and you were successful. Would you like to call out the investor that you were right against and tell us the trade? <laughs> uh, well, there's been a, quite a few that have gone the other way as well, so I don't want to give you the impression that we're always right. That's certainly not the case. But, but I, I think even in this one, right, I, I'm not too sure that Berkshire Hathaway is still in, in various... No, it looks like they sold 2018. Right. Okay. So the stock's done very, very well since then. So that would be sort of the first starting point that, you know, yeah, the, the, the game, the, the race certainly hasn't been run here, but demonstrably from 2018 to 2020, that stock has materially outperformed. The other one, which is, is terrifying in some ways that to be betting against the Oracle, but we think there's good reason to be doing so is, is in the airline industry. And we don't invest directly in airlines and, and we sort of share, I think Buffett's been a little bit schizophrenic on this topic in terms of buying in and selling out of airlines and trying to get people to remind him never to do it again but he's found himself there recently he was a seller of airlines and we were actually adding to one of our positions which is a company called hexel operates in a really cozy duopoly in the manufacture of carbon fiber for all of the shells or wings and body parts that go into the the newest models of of aircraft and there's just a huge structural tailwind there that part of the market where you know, carbon fiber is five times lighter than aluminium it's it's far stronger it's going to every new aircraft that we can see in the market so whilst we believe that yes there's going to be a, a short-term headwind here of sort of even up to a couple of years hexel is very well placed it's got plenty of liquidity on the balance sheet it's got a very large backlog of of potential planes coming off the production units over the next few years so whilst it wasn't a direct bet against Buffett, we were certainly heading in an opposite direction in terms of sector exposure. So I, I guess there, there are a couple of examples, one longer term and, and, and the second one a little bit shorter term. Well, if you see Equity Mates Asset Management as a major shareholder when you're next doing your um, <laughs> filters for this, then you know you're onto a winner. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> Look, Nick, we'll move on to the last stock and forgive me if I butcher this name, but Nemetchek Group. Is that I'm correct? very glad that I didn't have to introduce this one. <laughs> I'm, glad I'm glad you're not the only one who struggles with that name. That I'm not the only one that struggles with that name. So it's um yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting business. It's it's based up in Germany and and hence the name. And they are the pioneer in the digital transformation of the architecture, engineering, and the construction industry. In fact. They're the number one in Europe, and they're a strong contender to a business you might be more familiar with, Autodesk in the US. So the, the original CAD CAM guys in, in all things design. They, they cover the entire life cycle of the construction and infrastructure projects. So if you think about a, 
architects designing the plans. It used to be done on paper and pen and, and then they could take those plans, they give them to the builder and the builder goes to the site and tries to put a building together and then eventually that building's handed off to the maintenance staff. That's all put together by Nemechek in a, in a digital footprint now, which is pretty interesting. It's, it's got a really interesting background where the founder was one of the first to use programs, and this was pre-PCs for calculating the elements on heavily loaded, irregular supported slabs in the building industry. So he goes back a long time to 1963 when he started doing this sort of work. He's got, he still owns 53% of the business and the culture of the business is, is founded in what's called the, the Mittelstein principles in Germany, which is the small and mid-sized businesses in Germany that typically aren't listed. So it's usually quite hard to get exposure to these kinds of companies, but they're typically family ownership. They're, they're built for the long term. They're highly independent, very small head offices and quite nimble in the way that they go about things. It's quite interesting because their building clients typically operate on 3 to 5% margins and 30% of the construction work is, is rework and 40% of their projects are typically over budget. So Nemechek can help their clients overcome these problems and eke out slightly better economics. And the nice thing also is that the growth is mandated. So a most recent example is the UK government is forcing the building companies to use what's called uh, this BIM technology as part of their, their push to reduce build times and, and greenhouse gases by around 50%. So that's a nice tailwind. And there's also terrific upsell opportunities across the board where their existing clients don't usually use the full suite of offerings. So they might have one, but there's a nice attach rate opportunity where you can go from sort of one product to, to introducing three to five products over time. So very established in the, in the developed world, but you've also got this tailwind as the emerging markets start to develop and building codes tighten and people get a little bit more sophisticated in the way they use this technology. We think there's a nice runway for growth in the emerging markets as well, which is an interesting place to be. The economics are phenomenal. They've got sort of 95% customer retention rates. There's no one customer that's more than 1% of their revenues. And it seems to me that a lot of the stimulus that's going into to fiscal at the moment is really aimed towards this infrastructure and building part of, of economy. So we, we think they're terrifically well-placed and we're able to pick up some um, some stock during the nadir of, of markets in, in March and April. Mm. Now, Nick, I'm going to make an assumption about you, and please forgive me if I'm wrong, and please correct me, but I'm going to guess that you're not an architect by trade or you haven't worked in the construction industry. Imagine so, if you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'd just edit this out in post. <laughs> but I am interested, you were throwing some terms around there, some construction industry terms I wasn't familiar with, and it got me thinking around the concept of a circle of competence. And when you're talking about a business like this, which is not a niche industry, but quite a specialised industry. How did you go about educating yourself about this industry and trying to understand if their products were actually good and if there was actually a product market fit there? Well, the, the nice thing is that even not being a specialist, you can get pretty close to the answer by looking at the outcomes of the business. So we are all set up as generalists here at Fairlight. And we do have some specialties running through. I mean, Ian, who's the co-portfolio manager of the product, has a prior history in the healthcare space. So that certainly helps. And once you start to get into the more technical ends of, of healthcare, that can be pretty important and it does help expand our circle of competence. But the kind of businesses we try to invest in, we just stick to those that can be understood by, you know, a reasonable, intelligent person that does a lot of reading. So I don't think it's beyond the capabilities of anyone on the, listening to this podcast to understand what Nemechek does. If you get into the specifics, then that's all well and good. But really, if you understand the process of what they're trying to do, 
and the outcome of that and whether it's demonstrable in their numbers, then you're in a pretty good spot. So, you know, they're making claims that they can you know, reduce the cost for their for their customers. You know, what are their customers saying? What is the results that's coming through in their financials? What does the customer retention rate looks like? So if they are making those kind of claims, you'd be expecting their customers to stick around. And in this case, and you've got 95 up to 97 percent customer retention rates year on year it means that their clients are genuinely getting value out of the products that they're that they're selling so you need to cross check what you think you know about the business against the actual results of the company and in doing so i think you can get pretty close to the answer without becoming a, a sort of 100% sort of nerd on the topic and having to understand um, you know, down to the product specific level exactly you know, how they're generating those numbers. We, we understand the unit economics, we understand the product, we understand the business. But at the end of the day, if you're getting stuck in the minutiae, sometimes you're missing the forest from the trees. Mm. And that's what we love about investing. I think, you know, it just gives you exposure to so many niche industries that you'd never otherwise be reading about. Well, can't say that for everyone, but I certainly wouldn't be reading <laughs> about these sorts of industries. Now, Nick, before we get to our final three questions, this is actually the first guest we have asked this question. We are in the process now of building out the Equity Mates hypothetical portfolio. And a component of that is to get a stock on a watch list, not a buy, hold, sell recommendation, but purely a watch list from all of the guests that are experts that we interview. So if we were to take the Ritchie Brothers, Verisk Analytics or Nemetchek group, <laughs> of those three, if you were to just choose one to put on a watch list, what would that be? I think it would be Richie Brothers, and the reason I say that is I think I wouldn't be I wouldn't be true to form if I'd been laying the boot into the Australian stock market by saying it's overvalued and then not be somewhat price sensitive. So Nemechek has re-rated pretty heavily since we bought it. We've actually been trimming that position and um, Verisk as well from a multiple point of view is certainly getting up to a point where we're looking to take some capital out. So, But Richie Brothers is sub 30 times earnings and the near term is sort of clouding the possible earnings power of this business over the next few years. So I'd, I'd vote for Richie Brothers. Nice. Well, the inaugural watch list uh, <laughs> yeah, stock. <it> begins. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Please don't get me back on the on the show if it underperforms. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's, it's out there now. <laughs> yeah. So, Nick, as Bryce said, we do like to finish this interview with the three same final questions. Before we do, I'm sure a lot of listeners have had their interest peaked hearing you talk about your investing philosophy and then applying it to some specific businesses. If people want to find out more about you, follow you online or find out more about Fairlight, what would be the best place for them to do that? Oh, easy. Check out our website, fairlightam.com.au, and you can sign up for our distribution list and we'll punch you out monthly insights to your email address. And, and, and what we try and write about there is either a stock or a topic of interest. So we don't blast you with sort of how markets moved over the last month. I think there's enough of that out there, but we do try and lift the, the covers a little bit on, on how we think and reveal a little bit about some businesses that we think are interesting. Nice. nice one. I love that. I don't think there's enough of that out there. I think there's way too much of that out there. So <laughs> it's great that uh, that the content isn't just uh, what did markets do yesterday. Yeah, exactly right. We agree. We'll get to these final three questions. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? And now they, this can be investing or otherwise. Well, I think that you've probably heard enough of, of, of Buffett, Peter Lynch and Fisher over the last sort of few months that you've been doing this. So I'll, I'll skip all those or, or, or required reading and I'll take those as read. But a few that have, have spoken to me, 
over time and a couple of little more recent. The first one that I read quite some time ago, but really struck me as an interesting read. Have you guys read Endurance by Ernest Shackleton? No. Or no, the story of Ernest it. Shackleton? It's an incredible story. So it was the, it was Ernest Shackleton's failed attempt to cross Antarctica via the South Pole. And not only did he fail, but he didn't manage to step foot on Antarctica because his boat was... Um, his ship was trapped between ice and cracked up and ultimately sunk. And he and his crew drifted on drift ice until they hit a place called Elephant Island, which is really a remote spot. And Shackleton realised that they were so far out of regular shipping lanes that the chance of their ultimate rescue was pretty remote. So instead, he, he set sail with a crew of five members on a 20-foot skip for a smaller island called South Georgia, located off Argentina. And his crew was left on Elephant Island, living off seal meat and living under an upturned boat for almost two years they survived (laughs) exactly right and so ultimately Shackleton returned with a rescue mission and 100% of his team survived it's one of the most remarkable stories of teamwork navigation and survival in in my view ever written it's quite astonishing so I'll put that one out there as a really interesting true story and and one that resonates with me from a teamwork point of view the other two I noticed that you had Ed Cowan from TDM Partners on during June and the feel like team were quite good friends with the TDM guys more specifically um, Tom and Hamish who we've got to know over the years but we share a mutual appreciation for the importance of company culture and so one that I've read recently is called Powerful. I don't know if you guys have read that one. It's it's the story put together by the chief talent officer at Netflix, a lady called Patty McCord. And it's not the memoir of Netflix, but it instead offers some really refreshing insights into how to build a high-performing culture that can really adapt to what we're seeing in the business world at the moment. And it suggests amongst many things, and these all resonate with me pretty strongly, and probably you guys as well in, in the corporate structures that maybe you found yourself working in. But ditching the dreaded annual performance review and many of the company perks that have been sort of employed to motivate or try to motivate team members. And instead, it really puts forward the notion of, of providing people with really challenging work and encouraging productive debate across all levels of the organisation and making sure people are empowered to get their jobs done and, and work quite autonomously, creating that real sense of mission. It's a really useful read if you're looking to build a business or analysing companies for, for possible investment if you want to stay, understand their culture. And the last one, along the same bent, and it's only because I've been reading about these, so I've put them down as a theme, but the other one is um, Creativity Inc., written by um, Ed Catwell, who's the longtime president of Pixar. No, of course, Pixar created some of those great stories that I'm, I'm lear- going to learn a lot more about now that I've become a dad, but <laughs> great, great programs such as Toy Story and some of those other amazing creative movies that have been put together. But the, the key point in that book is that having a good team is more important than having a good idea. And never blame the failures on a single person. Always hold the entire team responsible for your decisions. And there's one quote in there that really resonated with me. And and that's essentially, if you give a good idea to a mediocre team, they'll screw it up. If you give a mediocre idea to a brilliant team, they'll either fix it, throw it away, or come up with something better. And I think that's 100% true. So I think that culture beats strategy 100 times out of one. Yeah, nice. I like that. I like that. Three great book recommendations. So the second question that we have is, uh, what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? 
Yeah, we, we lean really heavily on the literature that's actually produced directly by the companies. So annual reports, quarterly releases, conference notes, proxy statements, and all that sort of stuff. It might be boring, but we find that collating the information from the source rather than relying on brokers or blogs or other authors out there helps us form independent views. And I think that independent views are critically important if you're making investment mistakes. And we do also try to speak to management to glean some insights regarding culture and strategy. I know that's not available to everyone, but it's something that's been pretty important to our process. I'd definitely read as many of the investor letters out there. So if you go to sort of the 13F filings that you can find and letters that are put out over time, you can you can really come across some interesting things. And then the usual suspects in terms of financial press is, is a good place to understand sort of what's happening from a strategy point of view. So well, we read the FT, the Wall Street Journal, all the usual suspects, but uh, there's nothing proprietary in that. But being broadly informed is a, is a very good place to be. Nice one. And then the last question, if you think back to your early days as an investor when you were just starting out and investing in that first air conditioning company whose name has escaped <laughs> me at the moment. Um, it hasn't escaped me. It's called Hasty Air Conditioning. It's, it's etched, etched into my mind. <laughs> there you go, Hasties. <laughs> if you think back to those days, what advice would you have for your younger self? I'll answer it from an investment point of view. And if we have time and you have the appetite, I can give you one from a personal point of view. But from an investing point of view, I think if you study the characteristics of most highly successful investors and traders, you'll find they possess a pretty common set of characteristics. And I think that really comes through in guys like Stanley Druckenmiller, for instance, um, who's been honing his craft over to many years and maybe was perhaps blessed with some of these characteristics from birth. But the four that come to mind are mental flexibility. The second is an ability to think independently. The third is a tireless inquisitiveness and perhaps most importantly, a deep self-awareness. Um, but if I was going to give my younger self some advice to concentrate on just one of these characteristics, it would be to become ruthlessly accelerate my development of mental flexibility. I have a deep respect for the wisdom of crowds and don't be contrarian for the sake of it, only when it makes sense. In other words, be sure that the wisdom of crowds is truly turned into the madness of crowds before taking contrarian bet. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to do so otherwise. And and then get very, very good at blowing up your, your, your closest held personal beliefs when faced with um, compelling, contradicting evidence, sort of being belligerently stubborn, has no place in finance into, and for that matter, I don't think in, in life at all. So that would be my advice to my younger self from a investing point of view. Love it, Nick. We'll leave it there. And, you know, it's been a fascinating conversation. As we said at the start of the show, the small caps space is always something of interest for us and, and for our audience. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and not only sharing with us three stocks that you're interested in, but giving us the inaugural watch list stock, which I'm super pumped about. <laughs> how, how terrifying. <laughs> Look, we can't thank you enough for sharing your insight with us tonight. So uh, very much appreciate you coming on the show and we look forward to staying in touch and watching the progress of, of Fairlight. So big thanks. Thanks, Bryce. And thanks, Alec. And, and big congratulations for you guys for, for building a what seems to be a growing and, and a very insightful podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 